This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And I want to give a special thank you to Derek Fox and Noah Brown, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Noah writes, I recently discovered your podcast, and it has quickly become my go-to for my morning runs. I originally got into Geek's Guide as a way to meet and learn more about my favorite SF authors, but I find I am also really enjoying your panel discussions on movies and culture of the 70s and 80s. You are a great interviewer and moderator, and get the most out of the people on your show, and you have created a sense of community on the show that is super cool and engaging. Keep up the good work. So big thanks again to Derek Fox and Noah Brown, and to everyone else who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 417 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the 1965 novel Dune, written by Frank Herbert. And just so you know, this episode will not involve any discussion of the David Lynch movie or the Sci Fi Channel miniseries which we'll be saving for a future episode. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Andrea Kale, making her 15th appearance on the show. She's a graduate of the Odyssey Writers Workshop, and her short fiction appears in the Writers of the Future anthology, Fantasy Magazine, and Lightspeed. She's the former script supervisor for Late Night with Conan O'Brien, and is currently a staff writer at WWE's Friday Night Smackdown. So Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. The next up, we've got Rajan Khanna, also making his 15th appearance on the show. He's the author of the post-apocalyptic novels Falling Sky, Rising Tide, and Raining Fire, and his short fiction appears in magazines such as Analog, Lightspeed, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. His articles have appeared on Tor.com and LitReactor.com. So Raj, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Always good to be back. And also joining us today is Matthew Kressel, making his 13th appearance on the show. He's the author of the novel King of Shards, and his short story The Last Novelist, or A Dead Lizard in the Yard, was nominated for the Nebula Award and was a finalist for the Yuji Foster Memorial Award. His new novel, Queen of Static, is available now on his Patreon page over at patreon.com slash mattkressel. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Good to be back. Okay, so let's start off with Andrea and have you tell us about your history reading Dune. Well, uh, Dune was one of the three foundational novels of my childhood. Um, it was Lord of the Rings, Watership Down, and Dune. Those were the three novels I obsessed over um, from the age of 12 to probably about 19. I've read them a million times. Um, so I knew Dune very well. But this was the first time I'd read it in 30 years. And it was it was quite a different experience or, or quite an experience personally for me um, revisiting it. Um, as I wrote in my, in my notes as I was writing it, this was, it's like personal archaeology. I was digging up parts of myself I hadn't seen in 30 plus years. Um, but yeah, that was qu- quite an experience for me, quite a very personal and, and emotional experience for me outside of the ex- experience of reading a great novel again. So, so when you say a million times, we're talking constantly. about once a year, two, two times a year, I'd read it. I think probably at 12 or 13 or 14, I was probably reading it, reading something else, and then going right back to Dune. Do you remember how you first came across it? 
Yeah, my brother. Everything I have from my early, uh, from 12 on, I stole from my brother. (laughs) (laughs) And do you have any, are there any memories that stick out from reading Dune growing up? Oh, God, yeah. Um, The Gamjabar scene, I always, um, oh, you always remember that scene. Uh, And of course, the mind is, fear is the mind killer. How often, I still to this day, I repeat that every once in a while when, when something uh, gets to me. Um, and reading it again, I found even more things that I had, that I had forgotten that were from this. Specifically, like, lines like, um, mood is a thing for cattle and making love. <laughs> I was like, I read that. I was like, oh my God, that's from this. Cause I, I jokingly will say that from time to time. Um, but yeah, there it was. Um, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm asking not, not so much like things from the book that we'll get to, but things like, do you remember where you were when you read it or talking about it with people or, um, anything like that? No, no. Um, I mean, you know, I was in, in my house when I was a kid. I, I couldn't tell you probably my room quite a bit. Um, talking about it? No, because I was the only person I knew who was a sci-fi fan, other than my brother, and we never really had a discussion about it. Maybe about Dune, but very peripherally. But I I was the only geek I knew. (laughs) So this was all a very singular experience for me back then. Um, This must be very exciting for you now, now, knowing all these other geeks you can talk to. It it, it was quite a revelation when I met other geeks who could understand what I was talking about. Oh, well, so how about Raj? What are your Dune memories? Well, I mean, I think that my first exposure to Dune was probably the the movie, which I know we're not talking about now, the the David Lynch movie. But um, I think I'd seen it first before I'd ever read it. And I think I read it pretty late. So it must have been something like college or maybe just even after college. And it was one of those books that, you know, is is like an iconic classic of the genre. And I, for, for whatever reason, I just had never... Um, gotten around to it. And then I read it for the first time and it became one of my favorite novels of all time. Um, I, I read it, I guess probably around five, this might be my fifth time reading it, which probably doesn't sound like a lot, but it's something that I, I not compared to Andrea's million times. Yeah. I mean, million times, literally, I meant that literally. I'm, I'm really busy, you know, so, uh, (laughs) but no, um, but it's something I do return back to time and again. And, and what's interesting is that each time I do, I feel like I pick up different things and I focus on different things. Um, but for me, you know, at least in this novel, Frank Herbert is kind of in the ranks of people like, you know, I don't know, George Lucas or George R. R. Martin who, who are able to kind of create stories that have so much depth to the depth to them that they, kind of expand beyond the bounds of, of the pages or the, the film that, that we see. Um, People like, like George Lucas and George R. R. Martin who were able to lift stuff from Dune. Yeah. I mean, which is, which is funny <laughs> too. Yeah. yeah. But they'd all seem to have the same kind of ability to, um, I don't know, like I, we can get into this later. Obviously Herbert wrote more books, but I think just within the first novel, there's so much packed into it and so much that is, um, you know, alluded to without going into any great big detail. So like the world building sometimes is handled with such a light touch, but it's so evocative that, you know, every time I read it, I kind of, my mind expands with this awareness of this universe that is sometimes only covered in, in short, uh, light strokes. So I've always been impressed by that. I guess that's a good point that there are a lot of other books in this series. We're only going to be talking about the first book, Dune, but I guess, have you read 
Anything else in the series? I read... So, I mean, when I got into Dune, like I said, I was older, and I think that there was at least, you know... I, I talked about it with some people, and I think Usenet probably still had just started to exist back then. So there was generally this accepted idea that, you know, some people felt that the series wasn't as good as the first book. A lot of people would say like, read the first book and stop. I did read the second book, which I thought was okay. Uh, I I liked it, not as much as the first one. And then I started the third book and I I started feeling that kind of sense of, um, you know, waning interest, or at least it just wasn't, uh, what do they call it? Diminishing returns or whatever, Mm -hmm. I guess, as I went further. So I decided, you know what? I'm good. I'll just, you know, go back and reread Dune. Maybe one day I'll read the whole series, but I, I, I think I'm happy. Um, and uh, you know, after watching too many movie series where, where they just get worse and worse, I thought, <laughs> well, maybe this time I'll just leave it at the beginning. <laughs> so then how about Matt? What's, what's your Dune reading experience? It's actually very similar to Raj. I, I first encountered Dune actually with the film. Um, I definitely didn't see it in the theater. I, I probably caught, uh, snatches of it on uh, HBO or something. And I always remember being extremely intrigued by the film, but unable to decipher what the hell was going on. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until college when they had the, I know we're not talking about the film, but they had like, um, I guess it was the extended version, like the four hour version plus commercials. So like I sat down at like midnight and I was like, oh, this will be over by one thirty, and then I'll go to bed. And then like 5 a.m. rolls around and I'm like glued to the TV and I haven't slept, but I was so engrossed. So, um, but it wasn't until um, I was in my 20s and I was unemployed and I was like, I want to read Dune. And I picked it up and I was so engrossed by it. I think I read the whole book in about a day and a half. I remember just sitting there uh on this couch that I had by by my fire escape so the you know the sun was coming in and I and I sat down like at 8 a.m. with a cup of coffee and you know got up to eat a little bit and go to the bathroom but I pretty much read until dark and then I think the next day I might have had like 80 or 100 pages left and I just finished it and it was just so engrossing to me and so um um, just such a vivid world that, uh, like Raj said, it just, it, it spawned so many, it, it almost spawns more questions than it answers. And it, it, it just, it, it felt like, and even rereading it now, you know, there are times when you almost feel like, cause, cause, you know, Paul Atreides is this prophet. He has prescience. He's able to see into the future. And it's almost like, I feel as if in a way, Frank Herbert is kind of channeling that as well. That is, he's saying like, maybe this is one possible future of humanity. And it's like, it, it just feels like a living world. And I, and I think that's why I love it so much. And, and it is, uh, uh I think it's my favorite, it's definitely my favorite science fiction novel and possibly my favorite, you know, novel of any genre. Um, so yeah, I think I would say, I'm not sure how many times I've read it, but it's probably around four or five times now. All right, well, so you guys are all really good for this panel. I'll have to get now into my my dark confession that I had never made it through Dune prior to this uh, panel. I did read it for this panel, but, uh, you know, I tried to read it, I think, when I was about 10 or something, 10 or 12, and I don't think I got very far into it before I lost interest. And then I tried to read it again, I think, when I was just out of college, and I I think I made it, you know, up to the part where... um, 
Paul and Jessica escape into the desert, and then I kind of lost interest there. And then I tried to watch the David Lynch movie, and I lost interest at the same part in the story. <laughs> and then I tried to watch the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries, and I lost interest at the same point in the story. <laughs> hmm. And so, so I was kind of like, you know, I think maybe Dune's just not necessarily for me. And, you know, my parents uh, maybe influenced me in some way, too, because, you know, they're both scientists and big science fiction fans. But I think that for them, um, you know, when the, the golden age kind of transitioned into the new wave and it was more about the, the counterculture and mysticism and drugs and expanding consciousness and stuff, uh, you know, they liked the more the the optimism and solving problems with science and stuff like that. And I think Dune for them was, was, was one of those things like Stranger in a Strange Land that kind of left them cold for that reason. So well, it's interesting. It's interesting because there's. I feel this is a lot of science in Dune, especially with the ecology of Arrakis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's a rare book uh, from that time period, I think, in science fiction. I'm no expert by any means, but like that focused on ecology over, you know, physics or space exploration or whatever. Um, but it is a weird thing because it's, it's, it feels fantastical in, in many ways, but yeah. there, there is that yeah. core of ecology in there that I believe came from Frank Herbert's study of like marshlands or something like that when before he wrote the book yeah he studied dunes in oregon i think it was yeah you know there there is a a biography of frank herbert that i read called dreamer of dune written by his son brian herbert who went on to along with kevin j anderson um you know write a lot of the uh the, the sequel prequel kind of books uh and i unfortunately i don't you know it's like i don't know 15 or 20 probably like 20 or 25 years ago that i read it so i don't remember it in detail but I just remember really vividly there was a part where, you know, he'd put like everything into Dune and if it wasn't a success, he was going to have to give up writing. And uh, I just remember I, I, I closed the book at that point. I was really depressed. You know, I was like, oh, man, he's just like, this is so hard and everything. And then I, I picked it back up the next day and started reading again. And then everything, you know, went great for him in terms of the book after that. And I just re remember that really vividly how but just there was it was a struggle. Um you know, to, to get the book out. And I can definitely, I mean, you know, and, and as I said, it didn't necessarily grab my interest in any of the times so I tried to read it, but it is, I mean, it's a really impressive book. Uh, and especially just coming from the point of view of a writer, I mean, and I'm in absolute awe just thinking about what it would, the, the kind of effort and thought it would take to, to write a book like this. Um, and so, so, so anyway, so for, for years, my dark secret has been that I never read Dune. I've heard, <laughs> sort of been the number one book that I was embarrassed to admit I never read. Um, but I did, I did, I read it now. So, so no more shame. But, um, so, so Andrea, what do you think about that? Uh, what I'm saying about how, how intimidating this book is to think about as a writer to have written this? Uh, yeah, as a writer, it is uh, very intimidating because the world building is so complete that you read that as a young writer and think I could never achieve that. And uh, even as an old writer, I don't think I could achieve it either. <laughs> um, uh, I also think that uh, isn't isn't um, I, I remember you saying you didn't read Lord of the Rings either. I have I, I have the exact same yeah I it's have the all exact coming same, out now. The I truth. have the exact same thing to this be honest <laughs> with Lord of the Rings. Absolutely I, hilarious because those are the two books that influenced me so much that meant so much to me, and I'm like how how I don't understand how you couldn't. But whatever. Well, Everybody's different. Well, I don't know I'll, how we're I'll friends, say I did read, read I, I have read Lord of the Rings, but I really had to force myself through it. And that was just because I wanted to have read the books before the Peter Jackson movies all came out. Wow. Um, <laughs> and I think, and the, they're similar in a way, right? Because Lord of the Rings and Dune are both 
primarily um, admired for their world building. Yes. Um, yeah. And the things that I tend to like as a reader, I mean, I, 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 I like, I like to think of myself as pretty open-minded and I can enjoy a lot of different things, but I, I tend to like fast pacing, crazy imagination, witty dialogue, um, and, and stuff like that, which are not characteristics of either Lord of the Rings or Dune, I would say. Uh, but since we've had this conversation that you're really into like Robert Lynn Aspirin, which is, you know, comedy, yeah. is, would you say that that's the reason why? Cause you, gear more towards science fiction and fantasy comedy as opposed to some things that's a little more internal and and um what's the word i'm looking for epic well I, you know i do i do like me some comedy but not everything i like <laughs> is comedy um but i mean I, I did definitely you know before i read uh dune and lord of the rings i had read like Ro uh, roger Lasney's chronicles of amber which mm -hmm. is way more fast paced and way more witty dialogue and way more just like crazy inventive stuff happening in every chapter. Um, so, so I think that's part of it is that, you know, um, I was sort of, I'd already sort of attached to, right. to that sort of, that style well, of here's storytelling. My, here's my dark, uh, confession. I've never read Zelazny. You should totally read Zelazny. I, yeah. I, okay. Wow. Like, <laughs> and, and are like the exact opposite. Exactly. Uh, yeah, exact opposites. <laughs> I feel like I'm the bridge though, because I like both <laughs> Dune and Lord of the Rings and Roger Zelazny a whole lot. So like maybe I can make peace you're, between the two of you. You're well-rounded Renaissance man. <laughs> While we're clearing the air, does anyone have any dark secrets they need to get off their chest? I, I didn't like Amber. I, I bounced oh, off oh, of it. Oh. I, I, I read, I read the first book or so and I, I don't know. I just just lost interest. Matt and and we were friends for so long. <laughs> I know. I know. Boy, this is just busting every friendship yeah. all over the place. Yikes. Yeah. Actually, uh Dave, can I just go back to the whole writer thing back to yeah, Dune yeah, yeah. for a second just because I I I mean, we talked about the world building that Herbert does. Um but I think this t this read through particularly for me, one of the things that impressed me the most is how Early on, he just tells you what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think yep. you you maybe in the beginning start reading on to think like, well, maybe it'll it won't go that way. You know, you, you you're told that Duke Leto is going to die and everyone's like, oh, shit. Yeah, he's totally going to die. And then he dies. <laughs> but um, <laughs> he does it in such a way that I never and I've read this before, so I know what's going to happen. But I, I'm still like reading on. And, and that's, I think, a skill as a writer that I find mm -hmm fascinating and impressive and that you know it doesn't go away i mean i guess later on in the book you think well which direction is paul going to go or whatever but like you, you know throughout the headers are basically about the teachings of muadib and then you learn paul's going to be muadib so it's, it's kind of like telegraphed and and yet it, there's i guess what i think of it is a sense of inevitability about many things in the book but that's kind of part of what i like about it is that you know mm -hmm. there's this this kind of and and even Paul feel like you feel the same thing as Paul, like this the terrible purpose that it's building towards. And it's not about will he or won't he. It's w more about how? like how and what are the ramifications of that. And that's something as a writer now I was reading and thinking like I I don't think I could pull that off at all. Well, well and yeah, well, let's let's I, set up what the what the book's about for people who like me who didn't get through it. Uh, so we're <laughs> so we're like over a thousand years in the future. And there was some sort of AI uprising, which uh, humanity put down. But it's about them. ten. It's about eight thousand years from now, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, well, you read the book more times than I did, obviously. So, so at, the, at the end of it, they have years. I don't know if they're they're like common era years, but it's like the year ten thousand something. Okay, I confess in I didn't make it all the way through the in the appendices. appendices yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, so we're eight thousand years in the future, and in the distant past, humanity put down this machine uprising that led to all thinking machines being banned. And so, since they don't have computers, basically, there are special people called mentats who are basically human computers. And they're, I wasn't sure if they're bred or conditioned to be mentats. Maybe someone can answer that. Uh, I believe it's are, a little of both. Little yes. Both. There's some that are that lean towards it. Um, there's one part where uh, Jessica tells Paul that they that he has the ability to be a mentat. And right. he has the choice whether he wants to go on and be one for the training. Okay. And are the um, Spacing Guild navigators mentats or are they something different? I different. They're different. They're basically people who take a large quantity of spice so that they can see into the near future so that when they're piloting the spaceships through higher dimensions, they don't crash into a star. So they basically are able to see the path of the ship into the future in order to pilot it. Um, without the spice, you cannot have faster than light travel. I will say that uh, when I read it, as a kid or you know, not as a kid, we said I wasn't a kid, but like when I was younger, he does have all these different groups. He has the Mentats, you know, he, Dr. Yui is a, you know, a Sook doctor. And then you have, um, you know, the Bene Gesserit and you have the guild and you have, um, all these different people. And I always, I think when I was younger thought they were all kind of related and I think they are probably related in some ways, but I think they all have their own individual things like the, isn't it, it's the Mentats where their lips are stained purple from drinking Sappho. Sappho juice. Yeah. It's supposed to help Um, them think. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of drug taking involved in all of these things. I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure. And a lot of discipline that people uh, train from childhood to become the Bene Gesserit's, the the Mentats, um, at, you know, at a certain age, teenage years, they, they find this, they have this ability. Um, there's a, there's a lot of, these guilds are all about, uh, training your brain, not just the Mentats, but all of them. Right. It's about and conditioning the Sardaukar, and training. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. 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 But, but so there are basically, there are three main factions. There's the Emperor, there's the Lands Rod, which is the collection of great houses, and there's the Spacing Guild. And because the, um, you need the, as Matt mentioned, you need the spice to travel faster than light. It's the most valuable resource there is. And you can only get it on this desert planet called Arrakis. Uh, but it's really hard to get because there are these sandworms and they come eat you anytime you try to collect the spice. Um, and then, yeah, Andrea men- mentioned there's the Bene Gesserit who are sort of like nuns was my impression. Um, Sisterhood. Yeah, sister, yeah. And they, I guess, I mean, they get married and stuff, so I guess they're not quite like nuns, but they're sort of a a female religious order. And they have this, I thought this was kind of cool. They sort of seed every world they can with um, prophecies so that if they ever need to operate on that planet, that people will kind of be conditioned to to worship them and, and help them out. Um, and they it also said something in the appendices that they, they only do this on primitive worlds that are, that are able to be manipulated, whatever they meant by primitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they, they seed their religious philosophy in there. So if, if a Bene, a Bene Gesserit is ever stranded there, they can use this to their advantage. I'd forgotten about that point when I was reading because, uh, 
after, you know, the last time I read it was I was a teenager. And then after that, everything I knew about the book was from the Lynch movie. And they yeah. do not include that point in the Lynch movie. So I had completely forgotten about the seeding of the Messiah prophecy. And I, I loved that because it, I, it's so smart because everything else is just a Messiah story. This is not a Messiah story. This is a story about manipulating people. It's yeah. not so much religion, really. Yeah, it's not really. As, I, I would say it's more like the CIA or something like that. You exactly. Know, like the, that's, uh, yes. Yeah. That's it's a one of the notes. <laughs> yes. But they they it, don't answer to anyone other than themselves, really. No. I mean, they, they're, they're puppet masters kind of trying to orchestrate exactly. their own uh, future. Yeah. But the yeah. interesting thing is that it's all like, like very human manipulation. And mm -hmm. yet the spice, because it opens up this layer of consciousness that is post-rational, I guess, that it does move into the mystical and the, you know, the numinous, like the, the religious, you know, so yeah, I, I, sure. I do well, think like, that's what's like, you know, you're talking about the, the a terrible purpose. It's like this idea that even if you know everything that's going to happen, there are still unpredictable things that's, that are going to come out well, of it. And I did read the appendix about the Bene Gesserit, and the last line says something like, they thought that they were making up religion, but given how everything turned out, maybe they were being manipulated by a higher power to have made up yeah. the religion for this purpose. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of, you don't know what level it's yeah. operating at. Well, as I was reading it, you said... Uh Matt, I think you said CIA. Um, I was thinking exa that exact same thing. Um, what's the, is it the, um, the Arthur C. Clarke rule where any, uh, technology, yeah. any technology is exactly. exactly. That's what struck me about this was that this, it, it is, um, mental manipulation and psyops to the point that it seems like magic. I mean, they literally call Bene Gesserit's witches. Witches, right. Um, yeah, I mean, they're not. They just, you know, this power of observation and conditioning that they learn from childhood, how to read people, how to manipulate people. Um, you know, it, it, it's, um, I, and even the using the voice to control people. I you love know, that. there are, I love it. Um, there are people, uh, the, uh, the monks, um, who can, sing three different notes at the same time. Do you know what I'm talking about? There are yeah. monks that can sing in three different notes at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like, And if you're sufficiently advanced and able to manipulate your voice, maybe that is something you can do. It's It seems to me a scientific um, and human uh, physical manipulation as opposed to a magical thing that they do. That was what I my impression of it. Yeah. And so the, the Bene Gesserit have been involved for generations and generations in a breeding program to try to create the Kwisatz Haderach, which is a child who will be able to kind of see into the future, uh, or, you know, have greatly. A man. A man. A man. Who have, who have sort of greatly enhanced abilities to see in, into the future. So it was oh. my understanding that basically the Bene Gesserit could only see certain parts of the future. They couldn't see. Basically, they were blind to half of it. Right. So yes. they wanted to breed the Kwisatz Haderach to someone who could see into that place that they could not see. And they would control they him. They would control, right. Yes. And then that way they could see into everything and basically have control of everything. Correct. Um, boy, there's a lot of world building. 
Yeah. But uh, yes. I'll, get, I'll just hit a couple other things. So it's also noteworthy that in this world, they have these personal force fields, which um, mm. stop ballistics, you know, stop bullets, basically projectiles. Um, and so only a knife traveling slowly enough will sort of penetrate the field. And so this means most of the fighting is done hand-to-hand combat with knives. Um, but if you and- use a laser... It creates a nuclear fusion. <laughs> it creates nuclear fusion and blows up everything, you know, for for miles. So so they they often don't use lasers. You know, I I wonder if if you know I I kind of love the the craziness of that whole setup, but I kind of wonder if if that was just his justification for being like, I don't want to have them shooting lasers at each other. Right. I just want knives. So how yeah. why why would that happen? Um, and then working backwards from it, but and they it, use it, art- artillery, and they're like, they're using yeah. artillery. But it, creates, <laughs> it becomes a big part of the book throughout, yeah, I mean, yeah. like, you know, here and there. So, yeah. Well, no, and I think, I mean, you know, a lot of science fiction people fight with swords and there are no, the AIs for some reason aren't running everything. And in most stories like that, there's not really a good explanation for that. But I think in this one, it, it's noteworthy that, you know, there's a good reason why ARs, AIs aren't running everything. And there's a good reason why people are fighting with swords. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and then I guess just the other basic world building stuff, I guess some of this you find out a little bit later in the book, but so the, the Fremen also have this plan to terraform Arrakis, which is the desert planet and make it into a, you know, an earth-like planet with uh, plants and rain and stuff like that. Um, and then the Fremen, oh, I, I didn't even explain, I guess, but so, so the, um, so the, the main characters are the Atreides family who are sort of, you know, nobility. They're one of the great houses. And the emperor, uh, can actually, can someone explain some, why does the emperor want to get rid of, um, the father, Guido Atreides? Because he's, because he's, he's very a popular. He's a threat. Yeah. He's, he's, yeah. he's well, afraid like, he's going to replace him. Yeah. As emperor. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So the emperor wants to get rid of Guido Atreides. And so he gives him a promotion, but everybody knows it's a trap because he's, he's sending him to Arrakis and they're expecting, you know, it's going to go poorly, but Lito feels he has no choice. The only other option would be to become a, a fugitive, and he doesn't want to do that. And so they have to go into this, what they know is a trap, and somehow try to come out the other side. And they're, they know that the biggest threat to them is going to be their arch-rival house, the, the Harkonnens, who are, like, super, super not very nice. <laughs> um and oh, and then on on Arrakis, there's also I mentioned the sandworms. Oh, so so there's the, the Fremen who are kind of the natives, and they are you know they live in the desert and know how to survive in the desert, and uh, know how to ride the sandworms, and uh, and so that's pretty cool. Um, so is that is that most of the key world building stuff? Anything else? Anything else we should mention here? Well, the the Harkonnens are are basically a a family a house that that um want to destroy the uh, Atreides family. So they're basically, they collude with the emperor to uh, assassinate the Duke, but they, they do it in this kind of convoluted way so that it looks as if, you know, everybody followed the the rules, like, like the, the houses, the lands rad have these official rules of how you can assassinate people. Uh, So they're very, very careful about how they do it and, and how they hide the evidence of how they do it. Like they, well, the, the Har- and the emperor can't be seen to be acting openly. Can't be seen, country. right? So even though even though the the emperor's shock troops, the Sardukar, who are basically like 
Stormtroopers. <laughs> Stormtroopers. But they, but no, they're they're much like stormtroopers. Like are just they they fall by the Storm, dozens. Like stormtroopers so- can't hit anyone with their weapons. Right, right. Like the yeah. Sardukar <laughs> are supposed to be like this elite force. They're they're like the the Navy SEALs of of this yeah. world, and they're raised from from birth. Something like six out of thirteen of them die or, or only six of 13 survive the training like that's how devastating it is so they're they're considered the best of the best but they and they're raised on this prison planet prison which is just like prison the prison planet. Planet. Yeah. yeah so they're they're the the emperor uh sends these troops in in harkonnen uniform to make them look like they were harkonnen troops that do it but the emperor is basically working with with the harkonnen to do this um and and you know the baron harkonnen's plan is to uh, put his one of his um, uh, nephews. nephews in power. His nephew. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that he can control it. He, he knows himself that he he won't be the emperor, but he wants to put his nephew in power. Actually, I want to talk about that because uh, this is his the the Baron Harkonnen's plan is straight out of Machiavelli. If if you've read Machiavelli's yeah. The Prince, yeah. one of the things he recommends you do if you have a um you know a, a un, un uncooperative uh, population that you're trying to quell is you bring in some absolute monster who's going to use the harshest possible methods to, you know, kill dissenters and, and everything. But then that person is going to be hated by the population. And so then you come in and blame that person for everything and execute them and install someone more popular. And you've sort right. of uh, solved all your problems. And so that's even though exactly- you've moved everything, even though you've moved the, the, whatever window to the, to the direction that you wanted in the yeah, long term, the, the Overton window. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say Overton window. I don't know if it quite <laughs> applies to overthrowing, uh, um, you know, ruling a populace. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, ba- basically, uh, what what I what I love about this book is that there's so many layers of manipulation, and and you know, Herbert speaks openly about this, like the feints within feints within feints. Like yeah. everybody is playing each other on multiple levels, even to the point, like you mentioned, Dave, with the Bene Gesserit may have been. You know, they they might have been played by someone else on a big, even bigger scale. So it's it's um, it, it there's so much unpacking you can do, and even after you do it, you, there's still other layers that you're like, hmm, what about that? What about that? It's funny because there's actually a dinner scene near the beginning of the book where there's all this like crazy um, you know, stuff going on beneath the surface between all the different characters, and I actually wrote at the top of the page like this dinner scene is crazy or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, cause yeah, and, and all that stuff. I, and that's the thing I really, I really like in this book is all the, the court intrigue kind of stuff is really well done. And, and Herbert, I don't actually know, I don't remember enough about his background, but he, he obviously, he obviously knows a lot about, you know, politics and court intrigue. And he obviously knows a lot about deserts, I guess we said. And so like, <laughs> also human nature. I, I, mean, yeah. I mean, I feel like yeah, true. he understands that, like, what really motivates people. And it's like, you know, it's not what people say, but what they do, but it's, it's so, it's so interesting how, like, like you were talking about that, that dinner scene, it's just like not nothing, not like a glance, emotion, you know, where someone's standing, like everything has significance. And, you know, I, I was never like, sometimes I read, uh, you know, I'll read a science fiction book or whatever genre and I'll say, oh, you know, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. I feel the author's hand. And, but like in Dune, like I never felt that there was a moment where I was like, well, that's ridiculous. That wouldn't happen. I mean, it, it just seems like he's, it's just an astute observer of human nature. And 
it, it it's I think when you first sit down to read Dune, and this may have happened to you, Dave, there's so many levels to unpack that it took me a while because I had been reading a lot of uh I guess lighter stuff, if you want to call it that. It took me a while, maybe fifty pages or so, to really get into Herbert's pacing and Herbert's, you know, diction. Like there's there's just like I had to slow down and I had to stop and I, I found myself rereading sections again just just to sort of absorb it because it's there's so much there that you could miss if you just if you skim if you read quickly also the pov jumps around very oh yeah uh, oh yeah and he does it in such a a way that you know the economy of that to me is is impressive too because you know like you you could say that george r R. martin does similar kind of intrigue houses whatever but you're always in one pov throughout a chapter right this one you're always just jumping around it's impressive i think I, yeah, and I, I, when I read it, I never noticed it. Um, but I remember, and, uh, when we went to Odyssey, uh, it was brought up that, oh, you should, this is a thing you should never do as a writer. Uh, so I kind of got into my head that this is not a thing you should do. But reading it again, I'm like, no, it works so well for this. It's, it's, it's a, it's a choice, not a mistake. Mm-hmm. And, um, and because of it, and because he's such a great writer, it works. Um, and it doesn't bother me. You couldn't have a scene like that dinner scene with mm-hmm. one POV right, because exactly. th- because you'd have to write like a chapter for each person at the table, right. and then it just it wouldn't have the same effect. Like if you, like because you would miss that that moment where you know he's thinking this and she's thinking yeah. this and they're doing this and everything's happening at once, and you would you would lose that sense of immediacy if you had to keep going back to the same scene. And I think there's only one time in the book where they actually do show the same scene from multiple POVs. I think it's when they're when they're escaping into the desert. There's like a, a few scenes from multiple POVs, but really it's just uh you know, it's all all happening in sequence. Well let me let me talk about what I think some of the reasons I bounced off the beginning of the book are. And I think one of them is that there's basically no action for like conventionally speaking for the first like hundred pages of the book. Um you know, there's like a scene where um, uh, Paul is training in weapons and there's a scene where someone tries to assassinate him with this kind of drone robot. And aside from those scenes, I think every other scene is people talking, you know, like, and, and most of the time it's it's two people sitting in a room talking. And in I think in, in most modern novels like Game of Thrones, you know, you would have the characters talking, but they would be doing something, you know, they would they went to the fair or like, you know. Hmm whatever and 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 in this like the whole first 100 pages it's mostly just there's two people and they're in a room what about the gom jabbar what, what about what about when, what about yeah. when the reverend point. mother comes and gives yeah. paul the test of whether right. or not he's a beast or a, or a human. a human and and basically like she says later or they say later in the book that no one had ever survived that pain level threshold so she was ready to kill him um and he survived her test okay like, okay i'll give you i'll give you the gom jabbar Okay, <laughs> but I I think the point overall stands. Um, I mean, does, you know, I I just want to point out here that that is similar to the opening of Lord of the Rings, where nothing really happens. There's a birthday party, and then they just sit there for a good like thirty years. Uh, <laughs> I bounced off, I bounced off the Lord of the Rings at the beginning, and then and when I read it the first time, and people are like, no, no, stick with it, and and of course I loved it after that. But yeah, I mean, it's there is it is a slow beginning too. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, but, but, 
you take my point, right? That it's, does anyone disagree that it's mostly just conversations for like, yeah, there's, there's 150 no pages or something. Yeah, un- until, mean, yeah, until the, until the, uh, invasion and the, and the betrayal, there's not a lot of action. But I but mean, I, they, they, oh, go ahead. Sorry. You, but you need that sort of setup for the, the amount of layers yes. that there are to yeah. the story. Uh, and to the world being, you need to set up who all these people are and how they operate and how this world operates. So I, I think it's, it's necessary. And also it gives you in, insight to all the characters. And, and it's, you know, the first hundred pages are, it's a story of ideas and clashing ideas. And then it becomes an action story. So. And I, I also feel like for me, um, you know, that sense of impending doom that they yes. quickly seed in is one of the things that that carried Tension. me along because I wanted to like, Oh God, when is it going to happen? How is it going to happen? Obviously, like I said, I've read it multiple times now, but it's still, that still drew me along because it's, you know, that terrible moment is coming yes, um, yeah. shortly. And, you know, it's almost like you, you want to be there for that. At, at least, you know, that worked for me in terms of not having a lot of action. It just was the, the, the kind of the cre- slow, heavy it- gravity of it, you know? The creation of tension yeah, of exactly. how is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I did, I mean, I did really like, um, when the, the betrayal happens, when House Atreides is betrayed and, and falls to the, the Harkonnens. Um, and I felt really, really bad for, um, for Leto Atreides. I really did not want him to die. I, I had really come to, to like him, but this comes to my next sort of criticism and maybe you will all disagree with this, but I mean, I, I felt like the characterization was not a really strong suit. In this novel, I felt like the Atreides were all, and their allies, the Fremen, were pretty much, they all, they felt like they all had the same personality to me, that they were all serious minded and noble. And, um, I was thinking about, you know, like you can't, you can't read this book now without thinking about Star Wars, because it's so, so much of it is, so much of Star Wars is so derivative of it. But you think about, um, Han Solo and, uh, C3PO. And like any scene, if you read their dialogue, you know, you would know instantly who was Han Solo and who was C-3PO. And I feel like that's not true of Dune. I felt like I had a really hard time. It took me a long time to even be able to tell the difference between Thufir Hawat, uh, Gurney Hollick, and, uh, there was another one. Too. Oh, and, uh, Duncan, Duncan, Idaho. Duncan, Duncan Idaho. I think Duncan Idaho and Gurney Hollick are very yeah. similar in my eyes as well, but I, I don't know if I agree with you about the other characters. I, I mean, I don't know if we get enough of Leto Atreides to really get a, a sense of his depth. But I mean, like Lady Jessica, Paul, you know, Stilgar, to me, these are all like, like Liet Kynes, like these are all individuals. Chani, um, mm-hmm. they're all just, I, I feel they all have, you know, really fascinating personalities. And even Alia, who's just, you know, not, I love Alia. Not a lot yeah. in this yeah. book, but more in the in the sequels. Um, it's just such a unique character. I'll grant you, Alia was more distinctive, yeah. But I mean, like, no, none of the. I mean, there's nobody like ever really cracks a joke or like, you know. There's no. Know, there are no jokes in. in it Dune. is very no. serious. It's true. Yeah. But, but can I? I just want to speak to this for a moment. Um, they're in the middle of a. They're they've been betrayed. They've lost their their husband, their father. Uh, serious. Serious shit's going down. You need a little gallows where, humor in that situation, you, Andrea. Where do you crack? <laughs> why do you crack a joke? Like this has been my problem, and and I don't know if I've ever spoken about it, but this is my problem with a good portion of the last few Star Wars movies, in that they force, they they shoehorn this this humor into it 
that does not fit mm-hmm. for me. And that's why of the most recent Star Wars movie, my favorite one is um, uh, Rogue One, because everybody's fucking depressed <laughs> because they should be. They're they're miserable. There's a war. There's pe- they're killing people. You shouldn't be happy when you're killing somebody and trying to survive. The only I, I, character yeah. that has humor in that is the robot, who's a fucking robot. Yeah. You know, they're very different tone pieces, all yes. right. So, I mean, Star Wars is. I think it's going for like space adventure, whereas like <sighs> Dune. I mean, it's it's definitely like. You have the monomyth there, right? So, like, the boy mm-hmm. who goes through the trials and comes back sure, like sure. the hero. Um, but it's, you know, I don't want to piss off any Star Wars people, <laughs> but I, I feel as if, like, Dune, like, is taking real questions and, like, real problems that humanity faces. Politics, religion, yes. uh, control, um, um, you know, uh, people, uh, living in scarcity, you know, and then this, this notion of, of, um, of human stagnation, which, which I think is, is huge in Dune. Like this idea that, um, Paul knows that if he doesn't, uh, do this thing, that humanity will just stagnate and possibly even go extinct. That, so, so he has to become this prophet, this messiah to them, even though he knows it will unleash this terrible jihad through the universe. And I think in the second book, there's like 60 billion dead or something from this war. Um, and, and I just Spoilers. like, <laughs> right? well, like star Wars does touch on that. Like with, with the death star and like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the planets exploding, but I don't think they ever really stop and think, Oh my God. Like there's never like a moment of like mourning, I guess in star Wars. Like exactly. I, I just, I feel as if it's just, Adventure. We're, we're, we're yeah. in a space well, battle, and that's fine, and that's fine. Well, but do do yeah. Well, let me get let me get Raj in here. But I'm not saying that you know, like Star Wars is great and Dune isn't. I'm just saying because there's a lot of ways. I totally agree with you that Dune is vastly superior uh, work. But I'm just saying that in terms of like, can you tell the characters' personalities from their dialogue? I feel like Star Wars is exceeds Dune in that. But I want to get Raj's Raj's take. Well, on no. This. So um, one thing I'll say is that I I agree with Matt that I do find that the characters to me are different. I mean, like again, with the exception of say Gurney and Duncan and who Duncan's barely in this novel, but, um, uh, and, but part of that I think is maybe seeing it multiple times or reading it multiple times and seeing the movies and having those identities reinforced. So I, I'm not saying that I, I can't say that as an, as a, you know, newcomer to the book. Um, but what I will say, what I do agree with you on is that one of the, potential flaws in this novel is the way that the Atreides and the Harkonnens are, are, are portrayed because you do have one side that's noble and good, you know, from Leto all the way down to the men who are willing to give up their lives for his house. And then you have the Harkonnens who are basically all fucking lunatics. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you have the, the Baron who is sadistic and, you know, his, his pleasures are played as perverse and you have his, you know, uh, violently brutal nephew. And then you have the schemingly devious, you know, evil nephew as well. Um, and I mean, basically that's all that they, they have. Um, but 
I, I do think that, that if you look at it from, from, you know, a certain distance, it, it's like, oh, look, this is, these are clearly the good guys and these are clearly the bad guys. I think it does get muddied a little bit. Cause when, as I was reading it, I was thinking, well, it, it felt very Game of Thronesy to me, or I guess Song of Ice and Fire in that you realize that, that Vladimir Harkonnen, the, the Baron, is just playing the game better, you know, like in mm-hmm. a way you can draw that direct line from Leto yeah. to, um, uh, what's his name? Stark, Ned Stark and be yeah. like, Oh, he died because he was not playing the game. He was trying to be yeah. too noble yes. and the game is, doesn't work that way. Um, and so I think in the, as you read more about it, the, the Baron actually is just doing, what he wants to do to, to put his house on top. And I feel like if you looked at the other houses of the Lanzarote, you'd probably see more of that kind of scheming based on every other single noble person we see in this, in this book. Um, but it, it is, I think, you know, f- from a high level, it is like, Oh, look, here's the good guys and here's the bad guys. And it's, well, it's, it's, in, it's interesting too, because like the emperor feels that the Atreides house is a threat. And why are they perceived as a threat? Maybe because Leto is so well liked. Why right. is he well liked? Yes. Because he's, he's, um, fair and he's honest and he's, you know, he's quote unquote good. And maybe people saw that and that's why they were looking up to him. Uh, and that's why they wanted to, snuff his his house out because that was a threat to them it's absolutely why um, yeah and also dave you brought up uh machiavelli this is an exact play out of machiavelli in the in the most famous tenant of the prince which is it's better to be feared than loved the harkonnens are feared the, the, the atreides are loved who who wins in the end in that confrontation it's the harkonnens but then when uh when paul makes a resurgence and best the Harkonnens, it's because at this point, he's a feared uh, entity. Paul, at the end of this, is fearsome and not loved. He literally threatens, basically, destroying space travel across the universe, which would, yeah. which would have horrible effects on humanity as a species. Exactly. And he, he uses this as a threat. So it's like, you know, this is very... People say this often when they talk about Dune, but when I first read it, I wasn't as steeped in the kind of um, discussion about Dune. And so it's like you, you read Paul as this hero, or at least I did when I first read it. But the more times you read it, you realize he's not a hero. He's, I mean, no. he's, he's, he becomes, I don't want to say a monster because I feel like that's too black and white. He just becomes this um, force, this storm that uh is is destructive but it's it's interesting in that you know he talks over and over again that this is necessary so that humanity as a species doesn't stagnate and die out so it's like there's this um really fascinating tension like do you not have this jihad that rages across the universe and let humanity stagnate and die and possibly go extinct or do you you know let this happen and like i think paul is is stuck with this choice often and he usually decides to go forward with it. Well, let yeah. me let me let me pick up on that because I, I thought far and away my favorite chapter of the book is shortly after Paul and Jessica have escaped into the desert. Paul has kind of like gotten enough infusion of the spice that he's starting to develop these his his ability to see the future. Mm-hmm. And Jessica realizes that she's afraid of him, and this is her son that she's loved and protected her whole life. And he's, yeah. she's realizing he's becoming something that, that, that terrifies her and that she can't control and she doesn't know 
what's going to happen. And I thought that was really, really powerful. And I was curious, like, Andrea, I thought you were saying something, right, that you wanted to talk about how the female characters are portrayed in this book. Oh, um, yeah. is there, do you want to talk about Jessica and Paul's relationship? Sure. Well, it, 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 my comments about it, and, and I have many, um, don't stem from that relationship. They stem from the portrayal of women, uh, overall in this novel and specifically how, you know, this is, you have to take into account that this was written mid century, 1965. Um, women had completely different uh, roles in society at the time. Um, you know, throughout the entire book, uh, they refer, Leto refers to Jessica as his woman. They, they talk about the Atreides troops coming to Arrakis and, you know, some of them brought their women. Uh, you know, women are referred to as property throughout Mm -hmm. this, which is, you know, the, which is what the role of women was in the sixties and in the world that, um, Herbert grew up in. And I also, I, we talked about this. And I'm sorry, I'm going to go on about this because I, I had very, very, very serious um, a reaction to it after not having read it for 30 years. Um, at the time... Well, the, well, the let, most, me, let me just say, I mean, but yeah. also the society is modeled on more of like a medieval society. So it's even yes. more, you know, more so than just like that's what it was like in the 60s. I mean, it's, you know... I think you have to take it as a 60s thing too. I think it, it really... Um, when you look at the other, at other media at the time, the TV shows that were popular at the time, Bewitched, I Dream of Jeannie, um, and I brought this up that when we talked about the Sabrina show, the new Sabrina show, the, these, both of those shows, very popular, were based around a very strong, powerful woman who, uh, sub- sublimates her power in order to back up a man. In those cases, it's a bumbling man. Uh, in this case, it's Leto, who's a good man. But still, all of these women, and including the entire Bene Gesserit um, sisterhood, is all about being quiet, powerful women, so that they 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 have power through manipulation and not and not an outward expression of power, which um, at this point is completely different. And 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 thank God, um, because in 2020 we have women who are. Um, the protagonist of the story and they're strong. And you know what? When I was reading this, looking back, Jessica, the Jessica character for me is like, you know, one of my favorite books that's written in the last 10 years is, um, the Kushiel's Dart. Fedra, the, the main character of that is like a, a spiritual successor to Jessica. And I don't know if, uh, Jacqueline Carey meant it that way, but it felt like that to me in that, the, the Fedra character is trained from childhood to be an observer of people, to be able to tell when others are lying, to be able to control a situation and manipulate others. Um, to be, and she's also a courtesan, and she's highly educated, highly intelligent. Um, but this time around, she's the protagonist. And the men are the one who's, the men are the secondary characters. And I find that incredibly um, ref- refreshing. Well, and the, the fact that I realized it as I was reading this was um, well, cause amazing the, the, to me. The reason I want to ask you about specifically about that sequence with Paul and Jessica in the desert is it struck me as exceedingly strange that you have a 15 year old boy and his adult mother, and he basically is calling the shots from the beginning. 
uh, and she sort of defers. She, you know, she's the one who's like deferring to him and doesn't know what to do. And, and he's totally confident and assured. And granted, he's not an ordinary 15 year old boy, but it still seems like it was really hard for me to believe that, that she wouldn't have more of an idea of what they should do in this situation, given her, all of her adult I, experiences. I, I don't know that I believe that because she knows what she's created and that's yeah. what she's afraid of. She created Paul. It's not just this is her son. She deliberately created him in defiance of the orders she was given by her, the mother superior. She was supposed to bear daughters. That's what she was told. And all the other Bene Gesserits uh, do that and follow orders. She didn't. She created something because she wanted to give Leto what he wanted because she loved him. But also she thought in the back of her mind that she could create a Kwisatz Haderach. But this is a Kwisatz Haderach. She can't control. She thought maybe she could control him, and she realizes she can't. Um, right, so. and and even Paul realizes he can't even control Correct. control himself. He can't. It, it's just like this this wave. Um, and I think Paul yeah. Paul scares himself too. Like yeah, yeah. And you know, like one of the things too that I mean, obviously, um, yeah, like I, you know, reading this book in 2020 and you know the portrayal of of women um definitely um made me aware of of the differences between when this was written and now um you know but but there's also this sense like like dave said where we're supposed to be in a like a, a quote unquote like medieval fiefdom and and i think he was modeling it after that and and you know there's this i think we're we're we have this idea that you know um, humanity only progresses. We, we, um, you know, we went from, you know, um, horse, horses to cars to airplanes to spaceships, right? And then we're just going to go spread through the stars. But like the, that idea of progress is really a fairly modern one. And when I say modern, it's like the last few centuries. Mm-hmm. And like technology can be lost. So, so for example, we lost the ability to, figure out how they made the pyramids. Like that was well known when they made them, yeah. but now, now we don't. So like this, this idea that just because we're 10,000 years in the future, that we would have progress in every area. Um, and then we might not backtrack. So, so I, I don't know, like someone would have to do some kind of study or maybe someone has and like whether or not Herbert was intentionally trying to go backwards or that he was just writing to his time and it might be, Either I don't know, um, but like reading this, but, I, I mean, just I, the fact like they yeah. have concubines and stuff is clearly reaching back to an earlier era in right, uh, human right. society. And and I think I forgot which book it was, but I think he had he had more char- like Alia becomes a main character, and uh, mm-hmm. you know as yeah. you go forward. And then I think in one of the books is like a whole troop of women soldiers. Yes, there what they are. were called. And, and so, so like, I, I feel like maybe he was trying to address that as he went on. And like, for me, one of the, the most interesting characters is Jessica because, yes. yeah, you know, she's definitely. like second to Paul, maybe. Cause like Paul's just like, of course, the center of the book, but like Jessica is like part of everything. Like she has this entire history of the reverend mothers within her that she awakens. She gives birth to this, um, child that that like could you imagine being forced to like consciousness awareness in the womb before you're Mm -hmm. even like a person um and you know she sees she she realizes that she created paul which 
um, terrifies her. Like, and and she's constantly trying to cert- not only survive within the the Fremen community, but with her son and and in the larger picture of everything. And you know, she's just. I feel like there's an enormous amount of strength in her, like especially because she's trying to balance all these things. And you never see her like really lose control. Like she's always maintaining this control, even though you know on the inside that she's like really overwhelmed. And I think the one moment in it where she's like shows weakness is a beautiful touching moment. And what does she do? She calls Chani. Like, like when Paul doesn't wake up and she's like, my son hasn't woken up for three weeks. I'm helpless. I don't know what to do. And who does she call? She calls Chani. Like, so I, I just found like, like her character to me is one of the most interesting. And I, and I think, you know, um, I forgot the actress's name, but the, the woman who's playing Lady Jessica in the, in the new, um, Denis Rebecca Villanueva Ferguson? Movie. Sarah, yeah, Sarah yeah. Ferguson. Yeah. She, Rebecca, she said, Rebecca Ferguson. Rebecca Ferguson said that, you know, she feels that Jessica's one of the most interesting characters in the book, if not the most interesting. And, and I, I agree with that. I, I think I that, agree with that as well. Yeah. And and I liked the fact, because when I read this when I was a kid, she was so fascinating, and the entire Bene Gesserit sisterhood was so fascinating to me. And and the fact that they were so educated and so smart uh, and so manipulative is what I loved about them. And when you look at other cultures um, that had prominent concubine societies, like... Uh, like uh, ancient Greece, the Hatairai and the geishas of the of feudal Japan, and uh, the Venetian um, uh, concubines and, and courtesans, um, all of them, all those women, were like a sisterhood who were highly educated, um, who were bred and 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 uh, taught how to manipulate, how to be smart, how to be companions, intelligent companions for men. Um, and that was always, for me, a fascinating part of looking back on the past is that these are women not designed to be wives, but designed to be equal companions. Um, and that was always the woman I wanted to be. It's almost like the reverse of The Handmaid's Tale in a way. So instead of yeah. these, these women being like, you know, slaves basically for the men, like they they have this culture where they're the ones with power. And I always wanted to learn more about their culture and I, I, I know, I don't know if I haven't read many of the, uh, or even any of the, um, the Kevin J. Anderson books, but I know that they're, um, doing, I heard rumors of a, of a TV show about the Benny yes. Jesserit. So I there is, that is true. That is happening. Which I think would be amazing. I can't, I, like, yeah. I would love to be like, sit in a class, like, you know, here's how you use the voice or here's how you, you know, uh, do that bindu prana to to like yeah. wiggle your pinky toe while the rest of your body <laughs> looks dead. Like I want to, I want to sit in on that class and, and and see like how they're learning that stuff. I think. So, yeah, I want to cool. get I want to get Raj back in here. Raj, is there anything you've been wanting to say? Um, well, I mean, I guess on the, on the subject of how women are portrayed, I mean, I agree with everything that's being said. I think you know the one thing that leaps out to me was later in the book when, you know, they're worried about being attacked by the Harkonnens. They send all the women and children south to a different siege there to, yeah. to kind of hole up. And I, that, that was the one thing. I mean, that was the biggest thing where I was like, Oh, that, that doesn't make any sense. Cause later on you find out that those 
old people, women, and children end up taking down like huge numbers of Sardaukar troops. Um, So why do you need to send them away? I guess maybe in that way, it feels, you know, there are elements of the Fremen culture that, you know, women are deemed as property, right? Because Paul gets the wife of the man he kills, Seamus. Um, But I think the, the one thing that one of the the flaws that I would level on this book, and to be fair to it in some way, it it this is like one of the first times I've encountered this. But the idea that you know you have a whole bunch of women who have been doing this stuff for 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 forever, and then the one guy who comes along and does the same thing is better than anyone who's ever come before. Yeah. Like he's the savior, he's the promised one. It's right. it's when it, you know. Women were okay, but once we gave that power to a man, everything was different. Um, and I, I do, I definitely know that books have done that since, and I hate that trope. I think this yep. is one of the places that, you know, or I don't know if it created it, but definitely popularized it. Um, and I, I you know, I, I understand too that it's not, it's not a blessing. It's also a curse, but that, that whole idea of the Bene Gesserit, um, needing to bear female children because they were waiting for this male and you know paul tries to explain the whole thing of like oh there's the giving and the taking Mm -hmm. and women can only see the access the giving part and and he you know men the taking but like why then can he do both and i i kind of had this weird um moment where i was wondering if it was some kind of play on genetics you know whereas like you know xy versus xx and like you know I, I, I have nothing to base that on. That was the only, I was reaching for like why he could and they couldn't. I, I um, think it's a yin yang. I think they were going for like the idea of the yin and yang. I always forget which is feminine and which is masculine. Yeah. But, the, but the why can he like, access the feminine and the fe- women can't access the masculine? That because was, he was a product of, of this careful genetic reading. manipulation over centuries. But why couldn't you they, create a woman who could access the masculine instead? You know, that's what I don't get. Yeah, no, um, it's a good question. Well, I, I was just going to say that, you know, reading this again, I, I realized how many works since then have been um, influenced by Dune. Um, and not only influenced, but just like lifted, ideas sure. lifted wholesale and used. Like I was I'm reading this and I, I remember clearly reading um, the Wheel of Time books for the first time. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is this is totally... Doom, like he just lifted it wholesale. The whole Aiel in the desert, who were you know uh, tested and 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 made a tough society because of the the rigors of living in the desert, and uh, you know the Messiah thing, and the 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 half of the power that's female and the half of the power that's male, and the male the men can't access they can't access each other, and then the men can't access any. You know, it's like. I remember distinctly reading this where he just completely fucking ripped off <laughs> Herbert. Well, completely and utterly. <laughs> well, I, I want to say, though, about the plot of Dune. I mean, it's basically the same plot as The Princess of Mars, right? You have somebody who comes to an alien world and joins the natives and becomes their leader and leads them to a military victory and then becomes, like, king of the planet, right? Which is a very appealing sort of power fantasy. And you can see why it was one of the first science. This is Edgar Rice Burroughs. Why it was one of the first science fiction stories of its kind. The first, you sort of kicked off the planetary romance genre and you see that it repeats over and over. I mean, you have stuff like, like Avatar, um, you know, which is basically the same thing. And so like what you're saying that why is Paul so much better than the women is totally fair question, but it's kind of like, why is he so much better than the Fremen? I mean, I guess he has like, well, it is a white state. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, I mean, yeah, it is the 
Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no. I mean, that's a good point. And I hadn't really thought of that. You know, if, if, cause if you look at the Fremen as being descended from, from, you know, people from the Middle East and Arabic, uh, you know, the words that are still used in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think he, he mentions it in the, one of the appendices, but, um, I mean, in the, um, in the book, it's mentioned explicitly that they're descended from Sunni Muslims. Right. Okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, and Paul is more of a, you know, European, type person i always thought it had to be spanish because they they did bull bullfighting and stuff like that but yeah the um, bullfighting yeah, thing <laughs> so, so weird uh but yeah he comes and becomes their leader and you know becomes like the greatest of them but i do think that there is at least a bit of you know the, the book is very clear on the religious fervor that gets created has been seeded there before for for generations and yeah. you know even paul's like you know there's that point where stilgar starts viewing him as you know, the Muad'Dib and not, not his, his friend. And he, his friend. he gets sad about that because he's like, you know, I lost something now in this person because he's viewing me in this different way. So it, it, you know, there is a, it's not, I don't actually think it's because, I mean, Paul is this special thing. I don't think he's, you know, better Fremen than the Fremen. I mean, they even mentioned when he rides the worm, it's like, you didn't yeah, do the best job. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's the fact that he's been thrust into this role that, you know, everyone has, has, is kind of, folded into in some way but i I do see what you're saying i mean it it it, like he's the best fighter he's like clearly the one who should be leading them you know i mean it granted he's not the best worm rider but i mean there's there's enough about him that's you know that's like so so great that it it sort of fits into that that story pattern i mean we were talking before i was thinking you know the the you could there's a reading where you could look at everything that paul does and what happens in the end, you know, the threatening to destroy the spice and everything and just be like, it was all for revenge. Like he was getting revenge for his father against mm-hmm. the system and the people and the, the houses that like stood against him. Um, I think there's more to it than that. And I think that's part of what's great about the novels. There are layers and, you know, you're not even sure whether he knows what the motivations are for everything. But there's a, definitely a point where he's just trying to get back at the people who killed his dad. So... Well, and, 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 and the fact that like we're saying that Paul kind of becomes an anti-hero or, or something at the end does kind of subvert that, that trope in a way. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of uh, trope, they, you know, the, the, the trope of the Messiah, um, is subverted here because it's about seeding, uh, a, a prophecy by the Bene Gesserit. But then, surprise, you know, twist. He actually does be, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. He actually does become the Messiah. They fulfill their own prophecy. They fulfill their own bullshit prophecy. Yeah. Is- so it's, it's interesting because it's like, it starts off with this very cynical view of religion. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the Bene Gesserit come in and manipulate the, the quote unquote primitive societies to have these, you know, beliefs of the Messiah. But it turns out that he really was in a way. And, and, yeah. you know, I, I love that how the book, is able to to have both of those ideas at the same time. I also, I mean, I really liked the way that it, some of the des- the descriptions of how Paul sees the future, where he doesn't, you know, it's not perfect. It, he, it's described at one point as it's like watching yourself wander through a distant landscape, and sometimes you can see where you are, and then sometimes you dip below the horizon or whatever, or go down into a valley, and and those are the parts I don't know what's what, what's going to happen in the future. And I don't know if we we really explained exactly, but yeah, but so he, he part of his visions of the future is that people are going to be so inspired by him that they're going to just go on a rampage across the universe and it's going to be a disaster. And so he has to sort of take advantage of 
of the power that he has over people enough to accomplish his goals and somehow try to avoid tipping over into this just, you know, this, this horrible future. And I thought that that was, I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, well, there was, there was like two futures, like one where they would rage across the universe in this jihad and another one where humanity would just die out and stagnate. And then another one where he dies, which I think is the stagnation part. So it was like, it, it was interesting how, like, you know, he had to make these horrible choices. Yeah, but but from his point, I mean, I haven't read any of the other books, but from his point of view, sacrificing himself was, was like the good option, right? Like, yeah. He always intended to die in order to prevent the, the jihad. Well, I think at one point in the book, they he says that even if he dies, that like his name will go on, the jihad yeah. will still rage. Yeah, I think by yeah, the e end of the book. Either way, yeah. It's inevitable. They'll he'll be a martyr that the, and they'll use his name as, as a rallying cry for their jihad across the universe. I mean, so that yeah, kind I mean, of turns he, it around to make it critical of religion again, right? Yes. Yeah. But I, I you know, I, I also feel though, it's like, it's not this purely materialistic scientific view of reality either. There's, there's an incredible amount of mysticism and, sense of like like especially when they you know they take the water of life they take the uh the drug that the they, they drown a, a worm and then they drink its fluid and that this fluid allows them to have like um kind of a, a temporary collective consciousness which is like very Jungian and mm. um he calls it the Tao and you know which to to me it's like th there's this stuff that is um post-rational i guess like like I, you know it's not so far into just pure faith and pure speculation there there's like a layer of it it's like he tries not to go too far into that but i i feel as if there's like a level of mysticism and uh awe of of the unknown that permeates the work that that i think is why uh, partly why, for me at least, it's so powerful because I think that 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 level of mysticism and and sense of unknown um, that permeates the work is is like what like peaks my sense of wonder because then I'm like, oh, well, that's really cool, and I wonder about this, and I wonder, you know, how did this like who was the first person to discover the spice and discover space travel and 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 how did this like how did this change human culture? And then suddenly it's this thing that everybody takes this geriatric drug to stay young. But if you take too much, you get really addicted. And I, you know, it's just, it spawns these layers and layers of things. And like, how did the Fremen learn how to drown a maker? And then they go through this weird ritual where the water of life is first poisonous. It will kill you. But then the Reverend mother does some kind of trick with her mind which is never really explained to turn the poison into something that it just becomes a drug instead. And then like the, physiological more than mental. I mean, I mean, it uses the mind obviously was, to change. The, but it's through her, like through her body or like, like I never, I, I got the sense that the Bene Gesserit had almost complete control over their physiology, which is why, you know, she could, take poisons and neutralize them inside herself why she could you know pitch her voice and then but, and move but perfectly. inside herself yeah but she but they also give the water of life to the whole yeah but i think they spread it out i think they consume it and then spit it out and then that's what's she right spit there. it out okay yeah. I, I didn't quite catch that yeah yet. um one thing i just said we we haven't brought up and it's one of my 
favorite like little details the the name of the spice it's called spice but it's, the name of it is melange which i think is kind yeah. of interesting that's all i also think that the whole like if you read in the appendices there's the whole ecology of how um the life cycle of of the worms and the spice and you know, I've read it several times and I'm still not 100% sure <laughs> how it works, but apparently there's like these proto worms they call sand trout, which um, take moisture that collects under the, under the dunes, under the sand, and create this, this bubble. And then somehow this explodes onto the surface and seeds a fungus, like a, a sort of half fungus, half animal organism, which eventually become like someone explained that the, cause I never quite understood how the spice was created. I know like it, it, there's a spice blow, right? They call it like a pre-spice mass and then right. it blows and then it sits on the surface and then with the sun and with oxygen, it converts into spice. Well, and, and then, and, and then somehow the worms are created from this. I, yeah, I, I don't know, but but I, I did I did think because I always sort of thought about doing like oh it's a desert planet with a breathable atmosphere that's not very scientific but you know whatever but then you read it and you're like oh my god there's like a twenty page explanation at the end of the book for for why this desert planet has a, a breathable atmosphere so yeah the the worms create oxygen. I also wanted to mention um, Matt when you're talking about drowning one of, just one of the details I really liked I think it's at that same dinner near the beginning of the book. But one of the characters, I think she's talking to Paul, one of the you know people who lives on who's who's native to Arrakis is talking to Paul, and and he mentioned something about drowning, and she says, "What's that?" Oh yeah, and he's like, "Oh, it's well when there's so much water you like can't breathe and you die." And she's like, "Oh wow, what a weird idea, you know." And, and I don't, there was one other word I, I don't know if it was like sailing or, or oh boat. They're like boat. That's a vehicle that travels on the water, yeah. and you know it's like oh okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the details details like that I just thought were great. And how the um the fremen like if you cry that's they see that as such a huge gesture because you're giving you know water. you're giving water some of your water or or when um uh is it is it Kynes or is it Stilgar that spits on the ground uh and then they're like oh my god he spit in front of the duke and they're like no no sir that's a sign of respect yeah no, it's Kynes. respect yeah. yeah it's Kynes yeah no wasn't it Stilgar Stilgar was... wasn't at the dinner. No, this that wasn't at the dinner. That was when um, they were at like Duncan a- Duncan Idaho came to see uh, Duke Leto and said he was going to go embed himself with the. Yeah, I thought it was Stilgar. I think it was Stilgar. Oh, it was Stilgar I'm it, because scene. sorry because Paul recognized Stilgar when he sees him. Again. Yes. Yeah. 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 Also, the thing the thing that kept um, occurring to me was where are they getting all this coffee from? Everybody's <laughs> drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, coffee coffee's grown in like on on the side of mountains in Colombia in 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 jungle um a jungle atmosphere. <laughs> was like, there was a section there was a section in the appendix where where they talk about the ecology and how they were using these kind of wind traps and and condensers mm-hmm. to create these um growing zones and then one of them he talks about coffee and i i thought the same thing i'm like you know in this world where it's like you know even a tear is considered sacred and then they're just like oh here's some coffee service coffee. That's true. Uh, I, you know I, you but know spice it, coffee sounds delicious spice so coffee say. it does i want some spice coffee <laughs> um so does anyone want to mention like like andrea was saying that this has been so influential 
Um, I also wanted to mention, I mean, you know, there's this idea that the, um, when Jessica becomes, I forget the title, but sort of like the, the, what is it? Reverend Mother? Mother Superior. Reverend Mother, yeah. Reverend Mother, yeah. That that it's like she, um, incorporates the memories of all the previous women who held this position into her. Um, and and that made me think a lot of, in, in Gene Wolfe's book of the New Sun, there's a cult and they, you know, they eat the bodies of, uh of other members of the cult and then absorb their memories using this special drug. And then the, um, the ruler, um, uh, each ruler eats the brain of the previous ruler and, and gets and sort of incorporates their memories, you know, from one, one generation to the next. And I have to wonder if that was influenced by, by Dune. Is um, that, so was it that she only had the memories of her grandmothers or was it, no, all, Reverend Mothers. all the way I, back to the beginning of time. So to even people, even yes. people that weren't her direct uh, um, ancestors. Correct. Yeah. So I was. I, I, well, I thought it was worked. everyone who had held this this position, like they anoint one person at a time, right? And then the memories right, get passed from that person to the next, right? C- so you know, it's, it's this, un- right. this unbroken line of sisters in that line. Not every single mother superior. Or I'm sorry, Mother Superior, uh, <laughs> Reverend Mother. <laughs> I also like when when Alia walks in at the end, and the, the Reverend Mother, um, uh, the one that tested Paul with the Gamji Bar, is like, "Oh my God!" Like she didn't. There, there was a part of the reality she didn't see. Like Alia was something else, and she was terrified of her. And oh. and and I thought that was just a great little touch. Like, oh, here's a part of the. Uh, reality that that you can't see, like Ollie is like something else. Um, she calls her an abomination. Yeah. Abomination, yeah. I love that. Well, actually, when, when they're te- when they give Paul the Gom Jabbar, they're testing him to make sure he's human. Yes, is right. that as opposed to a machine, an or? animal, an, an animal, animal, an animal, have acting on instinct rather than with an actual rational brain. So, like, if he was right. an animal, he would have instinctively pulled his hand out, but he showed that he has control over himself. Um, which, which is interesting because I was thinking about that, that it's set up early on that the idea is you have humans and you have animals and humans are superior. But I think as, as I was going through, there's definitely, you can, you can take from it that the so-called humans have been removed from the world, you know, like they're, they're kind of have, and have grown into this kind of gnarled, ugly thing. Whereas, you know, you could look at the Fremen, you know, are, maybe they wouldn't be judged as completely human but they they're part of their ecology they work with their environment they are you know people who live and breathe and die and and they feel more alive um than you know the mother superior and the emperor and all of those people and so i think that whole idea is undermined later on um throughout the book i think at least the idea that of of animal versus human. Yeah, the the ideal the the idea that you know human is superior and that it you know the more human you are the better it is or something like that. And I think- I, I think it was just that the Reverend Mother was afraid to give, like she was concerned that Paul might be the Quisatz Hadrak, and she was concerned that an animal would have that power. That I think that was was what she was going for. As opposed to a human, so just someone who would operate on instinct and like, and they she would lose control. Hmm. I guess well, that's how ma- I read it. 
I'll just mention one of my uh, my final criticisms here is so I you know I, as I said I had never made it all the way through Dune, but I kind of knew everything that happened just from sort of cultural osmosis, and so I'm like, all right, well I know at the end there's going to be some he's going to ride a sandworm to yeah. you know win to to win the day you know, <laughs> and then there's a description of the fremen all come riding in riding the sandworms and it is literally a paragraph, and <laughs> and that's it. And I was like, wait 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 what? You know, yeah. after after 617 pages, you couldn't give me like <laughs> five pages about the awesome sandworm climax battle. I, you know, I, I, every time I read this, I always forget because, you know, I know that the end is coming. I know that there's this big battle and all of, you know, the, the emperor and Baron Harkonnen are feeling very smug. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, shit. Um, and I love that part of it. I love I, I mean, one of I'll just say one of my favorite things about this novel and especially in times like this that idea that you know you have this system that kind of is shitty and set up incorrectly and you know leads to good people dying and all of that and then you have this one guy who basically upends it and like threatens to tear the whole thing down and and I I love that idea um but you know he wins he he's got it all in his hands and then you know fade challenges him fade Ratha and and he's just like Okay, let's have like a one-on-one fight just at the very end. Like, you know, you've already had the big battle and then they just have like a duel, which always surprises me because I forget that it comes so late and kind of after everything has already been determined. It, it does no good except to make Paul feel good about killing a Harkonnen, I think, at that point, the last Harkonnen, yeah. right? That, that is his, his moment of revenge for what happened right. to his father. Everything else is actually fulfilling prophecy and or trying to save the universe, so to speak, or at least from his point of view, um, from himself or from whatever. But that is his his personal moment. Right. Uh, at right. the end of it. To the point but where I, Gurney I, is like, you promised me I got yes. to kill a Harkonnen. He's like, screw you, you Gurney. You had enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. this one's mine. Yeah. You know? yeah. But I agree with, Dave, with you, Dave, on the fact that that ending just sneaks up on you. Every time mm-hmm. it's always like, oh wait, that's the end. But I mean, it's a great ending, but it just all of a sudden you're just there. You know? I don't remember you, if it's the if it's if it's the uh, Lynch movie or the sci-fi movie, but they they do give that those worms their their day in the cell. And there's a scene where they're all just kind of like, wait, 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 we're not talking Lynch about the save it for wait, next time. Wait, no, <laughs> but I want to talk about the worms, the sad worms. <laughs> Uh, wait, but, but Andrea, earlier you said that it was like a weird experience reading this after so many years. Is there oh, anything yeah. else you want to say about that? I, I just, uh, like I said, it was, it's, it was a very personal thing for me. I realizing, you know, it was like, it, like I said, it was personal, I, I, uh, archaeology. I was digging up parts of myself and reading it was realizing where I got honest to God, where I got my entire life philosophy from. Um, you know, I always say, Often that I was raised by books. Um, my entire approach to life I got from books. This is the book that where I learned about like honor and um, sacrifice and doing the right thing no matter the cost to you. Um, so finding those things and realizing it, you know, it, it, I'd forgotten where it came from. I knew it came from books, but th- this was the source. This was like you know a personal bible for me and realizing that was incredibly emotional um you know i i was i was reading this while i was on a business trip and i'm i'm sitting alone in a hotel room uh 
reading uh, and just actually crying. Uh, not so much because of the books, but because I was rediscovering myself as a as a as a uh, uh, a teenager who was easily influenced by literature, um, and 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 remembering what it was to be so affected by literature, by books, and um, you know, it, it's it's something you don't it, you you find a new book you love, and it's always a new discovery. But this was something very proto for me. It, this it, was go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, it, it's funny you say that because one detail about Frank Herbert I do remember is that after Dune came out, all these like young seeker types would just show up at his house being like, tell me the secrets of the universe, you know, be my yeah. guru and stuff. And he was just like, please leave my property. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, doesn't, doesn't uh, George R. R. Martin get the same thing? Tell me, you know, doesn't he? I, I, well, I just, I, I don't know if it's the same saying, sort but... of mystical thing. I, I think people just like figured out from descriptions where his house must be and found it on Google Maps and people were starting to show up at his house. So he's, he's, he stopped, uh, you know, being so open about the physical characteristics of his house. But I don't know if it's the same sort of, you know, spiritual thing. It's just people, you know, coming to him and saying, like, teach me how to betray my enemies and kill them at weddings. <laughs> well, I as I was reading it, I also remember, like, you know, you know, that... Uh, overwrought poetry you write when you're a teenager, uh, you know, with too many hormones running through you and, and too many emotions. I I actually wrote a poem talking about Dune. Like, oh, you have to share it now. I will. I sure will not. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I certainly still have the journal I wrote it in. Um, but You yeah, can that's sing great. it and I'll play the balisette. <laughs> How about uh, Madaraj? Was it, what was it like reading this again? Did you know it? Was it different? This time around, for me, I I think, like I said, I think I was struck again. Just I was amazed by that whole sense of of the inevitability being kind of established early on, and yet not reducing any of the tension or reducing any of the the um, the the motivation for me to kind of keep reading. And again, like you said, or like I've said before, I've read through it multiple times already. So the fact that I still was like wanting to get to those parts, I think, is really impressive for me. I remember the f first time I read it, what struck me was the way that he helps stress and the way you feel how important water is. And, you know, in every, like, single part, like, we've touched upon a few of those moments, but, you know, the still suits and the, you know, the the descriptions about the desert and um, the fact that they reclaim water from dead bodies and things like that. So I think that's already been established. So that kind of was, you know, I, I noted it. I just felt it a little less this time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I was just surprised at how much I, I continued to enjoy it. Um, and I think this time maybe I just felt Paul's like struggle more in some ways. Um, his, you know, I, 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 maybe not more, but I feel like the terrible purpose that Paul talks about has always been evocative to me and it continues to be evocative. So again, those are things that I can come back to after four or five readings, maybe six readings, maybe 10 readings, maybe not as much as Andrea, but, um, where it's still <laughs> one million, <laughs> one million. <laughs> where it's still Got a long way to go. Rod. It still hits me, you know, <laughs> as strongly as it did that first time. And I think that that, that, you know, there's definitely something impressive in that to be able to do that. How about Matt? Yeah, I mean, um, 
I, I think that's the, the thing about uh, great stories is that um, we can read them again and again and we know what's going to happen. And yet it's there's still an excitement. There's still a pull. There's still a tension that draws us through. And I, and I think, um, you know, for me, it was exciting to go through that journey again. I knew exactly where it's going, but that, that inevitable pull and, and, uh, like Raj and, and Andrea, um, you know, as, as a writer, I was just constantly, um, astounded is, is, is a perfect word to use by like how much backstory is there like he'll just throw in a word and i'm like i, I have no idea what that word means is that a real word I, like i googled yeah. it and then like i googled the word and it's like from dune and i'm like okay well he <laughs> made it up like i well i wasn't sure let me just throw in too that this book has a glossary in the back and i really wish yes. i had known that before i read the whole book well i mean you're you're i'm going along and then they're they're using these terms and you know s- some of them are um derived from from things that we have today um, some of them are clearly Arabic words. There's, there's, you know, Hebrew words. They talk about the OC Bible. Um, there's Latin. There's, there's Latin, you know, there, there's all this stuff thrown in there, but then also with ecology and space travel and, and in this medieval setting. I mean, it was just, you know, I, I found myself continually engrossed in the book. So like I have this thing sometimes where I'm reading a book and, I'm very aware I'm reading. Like I'm I'm aware I'm not like mm-hmm. immersed in it. And the thing about Dune is it just has this way of pulling me in that after a page or two like next thing I know I look up and like 20 30 pages have gone by I'm like wow that was just really really cool. So I, I you know I think for me it was um you know I think the last time I read this book was uh I don't know it got to be at least a decade ago. And so with the the quote unquote wisdom, not that I'm very wise, but like like the the life experience that I that I've had since then, and now going back and reading it again, I, I feel like I'm absorbing new things, I'm seeing new new things, and um, I think you know like the best literature, you know, you, you the best art, you know, each time you come to it, it's a new, it's a it's a it's new because you're new because you have changed. And so the work changes because of your experiences and your knowledge, et cetera. So like that was to me, um, you know, the most powerful part. And I, like, I worried, I was like, Oh my God, am I going to read this and, and not like it now? And, and am I going to, have I outgrown this book? And absolutely not. Like I think it was the exact opposite. I, I love it even more. All right. Well, I think we're, uh, we're coming up on time here. Um, I, I think that was a, a pretty good note to end on. Um, and I just want to say I'm happy that I read Dune. It's a big accomplishment. <laughs> Looking forward to put, seeing if I can make resume. it through the, the movie and the uh, the miniseries. Have you um, never seen the movie? It's not all the way through, for sure, no. Have you seen the Jodorowsky's um, making of whatever? I did see, it. yeah, yeah. There's a documentary yeah, okay. called Jodorowsky's Dune um, yeah. about a, a an attempt to make a Dune movie that didn't work out. I did see that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we can talk about that in our next episode when Matt will get also to describe the sandworm battle. <laughs> I'm detail. making a note. I, I'm making a note. <laughs> and of course, I, I guess I should have explained, but this is all, we're doing all this Dune stuff in preparation for the uh, Denis Villeneuve movie, which will hopefully be coming out at the end of the year. So we'll uh, be reviewing that as well. Uh, 
when we can. All right, so we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Andrea Kale, Rajan Khanna, and Matthew Kressel. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having us. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Andrea Kale, Rajan Khanna, and Matthew Kressel for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.